This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And, and I am Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. Jumping the gun, but that is my buzz. Buzzy, thank you so much for that. I know. I only, I only did it because Dan, the producer, pointed to me, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I have to answer to, Bill, oh. to Dan. Can I really point to, <laughs> per- to Bill? <laughs> okay. Well, this, store is, this, 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 this show is definitely off to a swimming start. <laughs> <laughs> we are so thrilled to have back with us for these, this beginning of the show, uh, Kristen Nordstrom, who is the chair of the physics department at Mount Holyoke College. This is our monthly segment called SciTech Cafe, and uh, Kirsten, Professor Nordstrom, has with us a very special guest today who I would ask her to introduce, who will be presenting at the SciTech Cafe tomorrow, which we want you to know about because we think you're going to be really interested in what our very special guest has to say. So, Kirsten, let me turn the microphone over to you. Yeah, so tomorrow... Um we will have an event at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton. Uh, the doors will open at 6. Talk will begin at 6.30. And speaking, we have Dr. Andrew Swafford, who's at UMass Amherst, uh, who's going to be talking about sensational spores, how sensing creates lethal behaviors in a frog-killing fungi, fungi, however you pronounce that. I've learned it's either way recently. Uh, I was a little nervous about that. All right. Well, that's before we get into <laughs> whatever it is eating fungi, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about the SciTech Cafe? I think that for our listeners who are just joining us, this is the first time, I think, for the SciTech Cafe on our new show, Talk the Talk. Tell us a bit about the background history of the SciTech Cafe, and then we'll get to, well, these fungi. Yeah, so Mouse this... eating, moth eating, <laughs> what eating? So SciTech Cafe <laughs> is a series of public science lectures, happens about once a month. It started in either... I. I actually don't remember, 2012 or 2013. Uh, It's been funded by the National Science Foundation continuously. And so this is part of a broader impacts uh, kind of thing. So the NSF has a charge to essentially do some outreach to the public, education, things like that, something that's a little broader than just specific research. And so we've been providing these talks for free for over 10 years now. Um, And many, many kids, adults, uh, of all ages have seen these talks and learned something about how scientists do their research and something about you know the scientific process and some fun facts uh, from some fun guys and some fun, fun, fun gals. One of the aspects of the SciTech Cafe that I really appreciate, uh, in addition to it being accessible to those of us who were liberal arts majors, is the way in which the kids participate. Mm-hmm. And I love the question and answer period where the kids not only show that they understood what was said, they have really interesting questions about what the scientist, the professor, the doctor uh, has to say or has had to say. Yeah, well, I mean, that's something you see in, in the classroom, too, even at the you know university setting is sometimes the best questions are just... Um, Sometimes what you, what you might call the dumb questions or the most obvious questions or whatever, it's just not having the fear and asking the question. And I think that's what the kids are often tapping into is just asking the thing and you might get an interesting answer. Right. The, the question I was embarrassed to ask. Mm-hmm. And then the presenter says, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. I was so hoping mm-hmm. someone would ask it. So in that vein, 
Could you share with us uh, an introduction for who our very yeah. special guest is today? So this is uh, Andrew Swafford. So he's been sitting on my left for a little while, uh, and he will actually start talking pretty soon. Uh, so I'd love to hear something about um, how or, or what kind of fungi you're going to be talking about. Um, my understanding is there's some kind of eyes or brain of these fungi, and I'm terrified. So tell me more. Thanks, Kristen. Um, there are there are no brains on these fungi, but they do have eyes. Um, and I love that we started off with uh, the show with the word swimmingly because uh, these fungi do swim in the water column um, using uh, a tail, and they will uh, run around or not run around. They swim around looking for uh, their hosts. Ooh. And they're they're looking for frogs. Yeah, okay. uh, these are uh, a group of fungi called chytrids, um, and they're separated from the fungi we normally think about, like mushrooms or yeasts, by about seven hundred and thirty million years of evolution. So, if we're going to put that into perspective, um, that is about the same uh, evolutionary distance as uh, jellyfish and humans. Oh my god! And these are these are tiny. These are these are not like uh, you know portobello. These are tiny, right? No, no, yeah. These are uh, microscopic fungi, and they uh, they do infect frogs. And they're actually the causative agent between uh, behind a disease called chytridiomycosis, which has been affecting frogs all over the globe for about the last. Uh, 40 years, and it's really been decimating frog populations. So we find these everywhere? Uh, yeah, they, uh, uh, they've been spread, we think, largely through human uh, uh, like pet trade and, and human movement um, to everywhere in the globe. And in their native populations, there are resistant, um, uh, or sorry, native ranges, there's resistant populations of frogs. But um, uh, once they get out into like, sort of the broader population, uh, around the globe, they end up really uh, uh, affecting these uh, frogs. Wait, so can you back up? So humans are actually responsible for the distribution of these? And yeah, oh, okay, yeah, okay. they cool, they've, cool, they've cool. existed in their <laughs> native range for a long, long time, and uh, we think there are some frogs that are sort of naturally resistant, and those frogs are typically used. We see them sort of spread in pet trade, and so if someone has one of these carrier frogs and then releases it into the wild or flushes the, the water down the drain and it's not particularly well treated, they, they, these fungus then end up in the oh. wild. Man. Wait, can you explain that term, pet trade? Uh, oh, pet trade? Pet, two, pet, two oh, different pet words. trade. Sorry. I was like, what kind of biology <laughs> term is being... Oh, no, so sorry, like exotic more animals. It's okay. okay. At first I thought he was talking about fun guys. <laughs> <laughs> so is that like exotic animals or just... Um, a, a little bit of both. Some okay. uh, the, these the fungi were originally described on uh, baited frogs, which are these super colorful, really beautiful frogs um, that uh, can be collected and, and moved across. So um, I had a this is Dan. I had a quick question for you. Do the fog do the frogs like accidentally ingest the fungi, or does the fungi actually attack the frog through the skin or somehow? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a little gruesome. The the the, the fungi will uh, hunt down and attack the frog. Um, so these fungi are different from normal fungi because they can move, and because of that, they've uh, we think they've sort of evolved these sensory systems to uh, find where frogs are, and then they'll land on the frog attached to their skin and uh, infect the frog that way, and then um, uh, slowly the parasite load becomes so high that the frog uh, eventually uh, dies. This is one of those that, dumb questions that we were talking about 
what is a fungi? I mean, I think of portobello. What what is a fungi? I you know I love that question and bringing it back. These are those sort of like uh, questions that the, the the kids will often ask, where uh, they're like, "What is a fungi?" And what we think of a fungus is uh, really informed by the fungi that we study. So we think about yeast and we think about portobellos, and people have these sort of preconceptions about what a fungus is, and these chytrids really break that rule. So a fungus is typically thought of as something that will, uh, has a chitinous cell wall, uh, sort of uh, speaking scientifically, but also uh, exists and digests external matter and then sort of like brings it in. Um, uh, so they're not actively sort of chewing on something. But these fungi, uh, the, the swimming life stage that I, that I study, um, doesn't have a cell wall. So they can crawl and they can move and they can actually uh, uh, really dynamically respond to the external environment. And we think that's what they're using to actually find their hosts. Could you go back a second? Because I may never be able to eat a portobello mushroom again <laughs> based on what you've just said. So help me out here. Uh, are all, do all fungi share uh, these characteristics? And uh, to the extent that they don't, how do they how do they evolve to be able to move? And before you said they have eyes. I mean, I don't want my portobello staring at me as I begin to you know take a knife to it. So help. Uh, come on, Doctor Swap. That's help. a that's a great question, Bill. Uh, you don't have to worry about your portobello watching you, as it's in the frying pan. Uh, they do not have eyes. The the eye structures that we see are really specific to the group of fungi that I study. Um, they're the, actually the, found the swimming fungi, the right? Swimming yeah. ones, yeah. They're found nowhere else on the fungal tree of life. <laughs> so, whew. well, what do they see if they have eyes? You said they don't have a brain. That makes me feel a little better. I don't want <laughs> my portobello thinking about me. But if they have eyes, are they going through some kind of a process where they uh, s somehow see or perceive through those eyes? Yeah. Uh, they do, so as they're moving, they spin in a helix, and it's, this is really sort of actually graceful uh, uh, mode of motility where they, they're swimming and they do these beautiful little pirouettes, and as that happens, the cell rotates, and the eye, uh, uh, if there's a directional light source like the sun uh, shining from above, as the cell rotates, it'll see bright and dark and bright and dark as it faces the surface and the uh, the sort of floor of the water column, and then they use that to orient themselves and get up to the surface or move down to the bottom, depending on where they think prey is going to be or think where, where they expect prey to be. Um, these are also in non-pathogenic fungi, these eyes, and so we think they may have uh, uh, initially evolved as a way to orient the spore towards the surface or away from the surface of water, where they can catch water currents and basically surf much greater distances than they could possibly. Oh, little tiny surfers. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Swafford, um, you're an evolutionary cell biologist. Um, and this may all sound like pretty regular stuff to you. But to me, this sounds like very evolved kind of beings that are uh, attacking frogs, um, and that they have pretty sophisticated mechanisms for their own survival and propagation of the species. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because, wow, if this is how evolved fungi are, 
Um, I just think see a lot of competition between humans and fungi, but we'll get to that later on in the show. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that new show, The Last of Us, that uh, uh, certainly has sparked a lot of uh, thoughts like this, where it's like, well, how are humans coexisting with fungi, and are we really? Um, but in terms of how evolved fungi are, uh, that's an interesting question because technically every creature that's alive today is as evolved as every other creature. We've all made it through, you know, Edited. the last X mm. billion years through, yeah. you know, seven, five, now going on six mass extinctions. So um, these fungi are complex and they are highly specialized. And in fact, the ones that I study now, the parasites, parasites have some of the most streamlined genomes um, of of all uh, creatures because they need to be so highly specialized to infect and evade their hosts. Hmm. Can I just ask on the host question, is it just frogs? Are there other amphibious creatures that they also attack? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. The cool thing about chytrids is that they evolve parasitism with sort of reckless enthusiasm. <laughs> there, There's no branch of the tree of life there isn't a chytrid that like... Uh, eukaryotic tree of life, uh, that a chytrid doesn't infect. So they infect um, plants, they infect algaes. Uh, the biofuels industry actually has a huge issue with chytrids. Mm. They infect uh, vertebrates, so they've got the frogs. There's a new species that's emerging in Spain that affects salamanders specifically. And then they also infect other fungi. Mm. But no, no mammals so far. No mammals oh. so far. Ooh, Body okay. temperature's been doing great for us, and our immune system's oh. very good. Okay. So, Bill, you can sleep well tonight. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to worry about these guys finding you if you're out swimming. They they cannot infect you. Unless you watch The Last of Us in just the first scene. <laughs> then you might have a different uh, understanding of yeah. what's possible. Yeah, The Last of Us did a great job picking out pieces that are plausible, um, but... but uh, highly uh, improbable. But highly improbable, mm. and then really running away with it. It's this, like, the fungi can hunt you down, and which yeah. these ones can do. Cordyceps can't. And Bill, be before we take a break in, in the minute or so that we have, uh, I just wanted to ask Kirsten a question. How do you curate guests for the SciTech Cafe? Oh, that's a great question because uh, that's that's a bit of a finding busy people to commit to something is a is a challenge. <laughs> so, uh, but what I try to do every every year is try to come up with a a varied list. So I'm a physicist, so I tend to veer towards physics astronomy folks. And so I try to even it out with some biologists and uh, some other kinds of things. Uh, it's a bit of a random walk through space, try to find recommendations uh, from past speakers. Um, the really neat thing recently I found, though, is um, you know a lot, of, a lot of the kind of older scientists who live around here are starting to retire. So we're actually getting this really neat influx of, of new professors at UMass and Smith and various other places who have a lot of very cool new stuff to share. Um, so um, I'm, I'm kind of booked up through next year, actually, almost, uh, with, some, with some kind of cool new guests. So that's, that's as much as I can tell you. But otherwise, it's just kind of randomly asking people, randomly hearing about things um, and searching. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a great place to take a break because when I come back, I'd like to find out from Dr. Andrew Swafford how we happen to end up, I don't mean end up in an evolutionary sense, but for the time being anyway, at UMass Amherst. I really want to hear that, Absolutely. which we will right after this break. Thanks.
for Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Kristen Nordstrom, who is chair of the physics department at Mount Holyoke College, and Dr. Andrew Swafford, who is an evolutionary cell biologist who's doing his research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So, as I asked before, we went to the break. I'd love to know, how did you happen to be uh, with us here in, here in the Valley? How did you come to UMass Amherst, and why? Uh that's an awesome question because my journey to Massachusetts has been uh, a little bit of um, a random walk, to use the, <laughs> the word Kristen used. Uh, yeah, I, so I started off in uh, Santa Barbara, California uh, during grad school. And uh, when I started looking for uh, postdoc positions to continue in academia, I was at a conference and uh, talked to one person and I was like, I would love to learn how to genetically engineer these fungi because I think we're really going to need to unlock their biology to understand about why they're such successful pathogens and that's how we're going to treat them. And uh, that person was just like, oh, this, I know someone who just got a grant to do that. Uh, you should send her an email. And that's Lillian Fritz Leyland, Professor Fritz Leyland at UMass Amherst. Um, and I've been working in her lab um, since then. Mm -hmm. And when was since then? Oh, uh, 29? Yeah, end of 2019. So, uh, yeah. Did you have to... So... Oh, did you have to do some protocols for lab work then um, with the pandemic and stuff? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was a really interesting time. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, um, I don't know if there's any academics listening, but uh, for those of you that have finished a PhD, you know there's always more work. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a lot of uh, writing to do um, while we sort of sorted out mm-hmm. actually getting back into lab. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Could you go back to the question we were talking about during the break, which is uh, ultimately I think uh, touches on the importance of the research you're doing. I know we've been goofing around with you some about (laughs) these fungi, but uh, we're talking about the potential for diseases um, that can wipe out entire uh, parts of the Earth's ecosystem and in some ways uh, has applicability to diseases that can affect human beings. So I I would uh, appreciate it if you would tell us how you see the potential impact of this work that you're doing. Yeah, uh, this might be a little bit of a longer answer because there's a couple really important pieces that I think that question touches upon. Uh, The first piece is this, uh, I don't know if it's an emergence, but this idea of one health where we're considering human health through multiple different angles. And one of those angles is uh, environmental services that ecosystems provide to keep humans healthy. So this would be, you know, uh, uh, you can think of it like trees and and roots resisting erosion. But one of these is uh, uh, frogs and um, uh, many different animals uh, will uh, eat disease-causing organisms like uh, uh, mosquitoes. And this is actually some of the fallout that we're just starting to see now uh, enumerated in studies um, is that disease rates in chytrid-affected areas uh, are uh, rising. So uh, understanding and being able to sort of uh, ameliorate or uh, curb uh, how severe chytrid infections are in the wild is going to be really important. And in order to do that, we need to understand their biology, how they find their hosts, and uh, how they affect their hosts so that we know how to disrupt that um, that process. And, um, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, please, I, go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. I want to know more about that. Yeah, uh, so, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Well, how does this affect research or does it affect research um, that is direct, more directly applicable to diseases in human beings? Is there a parallel here? Uh, I think there there's not a direct parallel. I don't think there's a direct connection, but a, a parallel certainly in that uh, as uh, global temperatures rise and we end up uh, slowly seeing or being exposed to new um, uh, pathogens and new pathogens occur, we're going to need to be able to understand a broader range of uh, biology. And as I was saying, there, there's these sort of preconceptions we walk into thinking about fungi with. You know, they've got a cell wall. They use this pathway to metabolize. Uh, this is how they infect creatures um, or, or, you know, other other organisms. But these chytrids are, the more we study their biology and the deeper we dive into the sort of molecular mechanisms that have evolved, the more we understand uh, how limited our current knowledge of sort of the multiple vectors um, that we're going to have to address when it comes to new pathogens that may establish themselves in humans. 
Dr. Swarford, I, I have a remedial question. We just have a minute or two left, but you mentioned before, and I'm still puzzled about this idea that these uh, fungi have something in the nature of an eye that actually perceives light and reacts to it and makes, uh, I don't mean to anthropomorphize the fungi, but makes decisions based on what the light tells it in some way. Is this an indication of a highly evolved organism, this eye? Uh, and is it, by the way, is it, is it one eye or two? Uh, it is, as far as we can tell, one eye. It may have multiple different lenses. Mm. Um, they come in many shapes and sizes, and I've got a lot of pictures of fungal eyes in my uh, talk, which I'll be giving. Okay. But it certainly is an indication of a highly specialized organism. Wow. wow. It just sounds fascinating. So might we turn back to uh, Kristen Nordstrom, who is the director of the SciTech FA. For those of our listeners who are just learning about the SciTech Cafe, tell us where we can hear Dr. Swafford and the ins and outs of where to go and what will happen. Yeah, so uh, tomorrow night, uh, 6 p.m., doors will open, talks at 6.30. You can see some fungal eye spots and learn about parasitic fungi from Dr. Swafford. Uh, this will be at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton. It's all ages. It's free. There will be some light refreshments. You can bring your own food beer for purchase. And uh, Dr. Swafford will give a talk for about 30 minutes. We'll see some cool images, learn about some cool stuff. And then there'll be a Q&A with the audience if you have any burning questions for the speaker. I have one burning question. You're not going to bring any of these seeing fungi with you tomorrow, just in case people have, well, you know, the liberal arts majors like me might have a concern about that. <laughs> no, this will certainly not be a show and tell. Well, the, but there'll be plenty. <laughs> I mean, we're in a brewery, so there's going to be a lot of yeasts around. So, you know. <laughs> you'll, you'll have distant cousins right nearby. <laughs> distant cousins nearby. And they're going to hold the SciTech Cafe in the mushroom <laughs> down there. Yeah. So Abandoned Building Brewery, oh, yeah. uh, if you want to check us out online, SciTechCafe.org, sign up for our mailing list. Facebook.com slash SciTechCafe. We'll post everything you need to know there. Um, and yeah. And again, this is Abandoned uh, Building Brewery. Abandoned Building Brewery, Tomorrow East evening. Hampton. Tomorrow evening, 6 p.m., doors, 6.30 talk. If you've never been there before, take a few extra minutes to, to locate it. Uh, but it's a uh, lo lovely, lovely building, lovely structure. Yeah. And really and really not hard to find at all in East Hampton. Mm -hmm. It's, wor it's worth the, all of five minutes it will take you to drive there. <laughs> it's re really, really, really. As evolved human beings, we can do this. Yes, use, use your eye spots to orient yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Navigate towards the... Uh... Navigate towards the beer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes. We appreciate it. Kristen Nordstrom, Chair of Physics at Mount Holy College. Dr. Andrew Swafford, thank you so very much. We really look forward to your talk tomorrow night and again at the Bannon Brewery. Benton Building Bain Brewery. Building. Thank you so Say much. It three for times. You. All right. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you so very much. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Jury selection is underway in Hampton Superior Court today in the trial of a former Westfield police detective. Brian Fanyon is charged with the 2018 murder of his wife, Amy Fanyon. He is alleged to have killed her during an argument while he was home on a lunch break. Amy Fanyon's death was initially ruled a suicide.
Students and young people today are struggling with their mental health more than ever. Dr. Deborah Offner wrote a book called Educators as First Responders to point out the need for educators to notice and intervene when they see a student struggling with their emotional well-being. To function adequately as a student, you need to be mentally well. And the way to equip people, I think, is to make it a community or sort of village problem on your school campus so that it's not just the psychologists or the school counselors or the dean of students that are attending to things, but it's all the adults in the building. According to Offner's book, more than 36% of young people have persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness in the last year. And 32% of children have experienced an anxiety disorder by age 18. The Community Preservation Act Committee in Hadley is considering a request to stabilize the former Russell School and prevent continued deterioration. The CPA is looking at a $1.24 million request from the Russell School Committee with support from the Municipal Building Committee. The CPA will meet on February 27th and will finalize recommendations and a funding plan that would be presented to annual town meeting in May. Any lingering snow this morning will quickly taper off. A couple of flurries possible middle of the day. Then another round of rain and snow showers this afternoon. A high of 38 to 42. Scattered rain and snow showers early this evening, then drying out. Overnight low of 24 to 30. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Chance of some late day rain, sleet, and snow. A high of 40 to 44. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden recorrió el centro de Kiev en una visita no anunciada el lunes y prometió apoyar a Ucrania todo el tiempo que sea necesario en un viaje programado para eclipsar al Kremlin antes del primer aniversario de la invasión de Rusia. Cuando el presidente ruso Vladimir Putin lanzó su invasión hace casi un año, pensó que Ucrania era débil y que Occidente estaba dividido. Pensó que podría sobrevivirnos, pero estaba completamente equivocado, dijo Biden. Los tanques rusos calcinados se alzan como símbolo del asalto fallido de Moscú a la capital al comienzo de su invasión que comenzó el 24 de febrero. Sus fuerzas alcanzaron rápidamente las murallas de Kiev solo para ser rechazadas por una resistencia inesperadamente feroz. Por su parte, Rusia dice que ha anexado casi una quinta parte de Ucrania, mientras que Occidente ha prometido decenas de miles de millones de dólares en ayuda militar a Kiev. En otras informaciones, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton votó a favor de formar una comisión para estudiar la posibilidad de reparaciones para los residentes, trabajadores y estudiantes negros. La medida sigue a una acción similar en Amherst y Boston. En una resolución, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton se disculpó por decisiones pasadas que, según dijo, arraigaron la segregación y la discriminación en áreas como la vivienda y las licencias. El Consejo Municipal también votó para crear una comisión para estudiar qué iniciativas deberían financiarse para reparar esos daños y nutrir a la comunidad y la cultura negras. El concejal de la ciudad, Garrick Perry, quien copatrocinó la resolución, dijo que ahora trabajará con la oficina de la alcaldesa y otros concejales para presentar una especie de esquema de cuál será el cargo de la comisión y un cronograma, así como cuál será la composición de la comisión. Perry dijo que planea tener el esquema listo para el 30 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we promised that on the other side of this segment, we will have our walk-up music for the comedy quiz. Well, it is our monthly comedy quiz and here to introduce our contestants and the topic 
and we invite you all at, at home or in the car as you as you may be to play along on the comedy quiz maddie benjamin the microphone is yours thank you bill and good morning my name is maddie benjamin i'm the program manager and facilitator of fun at happier valley comedy theater and the monthly nerd in residence and this is the happier valley comedy comedy quiz show where i will ask a handful of funny people to ask questions about subjects they know nothing about uh, and this month those funny people are our guest panelists kate jobson sally eckes and laura patrick Yes. Kate, Sally, and Laura all perform regularly at Happier Valley Comedy, and they know a lot about the art of being funny. Uh, but how much do you know about the fine art world in general? Ooh, oh. Almost nothing. Zero. <laughs> I'm going now. Amazing. Uh, well, I, I need to keep things interesting, so I'm not going to be asking you questions about the good things that happen in the art world, um, but I have a quiz today on uh, art scandals and disasters. Yes. All right. Banksy. <laughs> Well, well, Sally, um, I do have, uh, to kick off our first question, uh, Sally made a, a great prediction. Uh, so, question number one, everybody feeling ready? Yes. Yeah. Do cool. we just shout out? Is that our... Yeah, uh, when you know, these questions will be multiple choice. Uh, chime on in when you think you have the answer. Yeah. Everybody can weigh in, and then Bill will uh, uh, score accordingly. All right. Amazing. I'll score in some, in some <laughs> way that was, is elusive after the first 10 years. I still don't understand it, but I'll do my best. That sounds great. <laughs> he is bribable. All right. Question one, multiple choice. After selling at auction for $1.4 million in 2018, what happened to Banksy's girl with balloon? It shredded. <laughs> uh, um, would you like me to give you some options first, Kate? I was told that I could chime in at any time. Cool. This cool, is cool, classic cool. Kate. I couldn't right, turn good. off the competitiveness. Um, did you hear me say the answer earlier? Uh, you didn't say the answer. You said the artist. If. If no one can see um, uh, on the radio, obviously, uh, Kate uh, has a sweatband and uh, is is fully warmed up for this. I'm going to read the multiple choice answers and then I forgot forgot people were playing around at home. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot it was not all about me. All right. Uh, What happened to Banksy's girl with balloon? Was it A, set on fire? Was it B, lost in the mail? Was it C, dropped into a shredder? Or was it D, revealed to be a fake? Hmm. Well, what to think <laughs> here? Let's just take a minute. Hmm. Yeah. I'm then going now. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't feel fully bad when I first said it, but now I feel bad. <laughs> I'll be better. I'll be good from now on. <laughs> Uh, all right. Kate, what are, what Kate, are you got to guess. You got to guess. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go with shredded. Great. <laughs> I, I am also going to go with uh, shredded. I'm going to go with um, was let go and flew into the sky and is somewhere over Paris. Excellent. Uh, with or without Kate's help, the correct answer is C. It was dropped no. into a shredder. Oh, thanks, Kate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. Kate, hold on. One sec. I'm going to read all the answers for this next one, and then feel free to chime in. Okay, great. Question number two. In 2022, UK climate activists made a statement by throwing what at Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers? Was it A, tomato soup, B, mashed potatoes, C, hot tea, or D, orange marmalade? Hmm. Oh, Laura, looks like she knows the answer. I, I, I was just going to go with orange marmalade. 
because, because it's, it's tasty. So British? Yeah, because yeah, it's marmalade. Yeah. Who doesn't love some marmalade? Yeah. And I don't think the British would waste the tea. Um, I, I was actually going to go hot tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to, you know, evoke the hotness of our earth. I'm going to go tomatoes because I know that in art, typically when you're unsatisfied <laughs> at a performance, you can throw tomatoes. So maybe they mm. they were taking that from the stage and, and, and made oh. it, applying it, made it soup. applying it to art. You can throw tomatoes when you don't like art. That's a rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing that happens at plays or used to. It's it's not happening now. I don't think it's a thing people just... Please nobody bring tomatoes yeah, to HBC. <laughs> what, what have you started? <laughs> All right. Well, um, however she got to the answer, uh, Kate Johnson is correct. Oh my it was gosh. a can of Heinz tomato Again? soup. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's two two points for Kate Johnson. Why soup? Wow. Maybe minus a point for the rationale. <laughs> just throwing that out there, Bill. Just saying. Maybe, you know, a p- plus two minus one situation. And maybe minus half know. a point for starting art revolutions. Now yeah. we're all going to get hit with tomatoes. Tomato soup, yeah. <laughs> Bring the no, toast. It's, still, it's still a scoring. It's still a scoring mechanism for on Rotten Tomatoes on various kinds of mm. uh, movies, oh. movie right? Yeah, yeah, mm. that makes sense. Okay, I'm giving myself a point. Very yeah. good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got a point for that. <laughs> sure. All right. Uh, question number three: The greatest property theft in history took place just down the road. When thieves disguised as police officers stole paintings worth approximately $500 million from what Boston area museum? Was it A, (laughs) 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 the The anxious museum from Laura? Laura. (laughs) Don't steal my moment. Just a moment. All right. Was it A, the Peabody Essex Museum? Was it B, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? C, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, or D, the Harvard Art Museum? Well, I'll start with Isabella Stewart Gardner. That's Laura. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, this is Sally. I also choose B because gardens are easier to break into. I feel like I should because Laura was pretty confident and I do want to win. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm going to choose D. What was D? Harvard. <laughs> Nobody's breaking into Harvard. Harvard. I feel like people were upset they didn't get in. And so they were like, well, now I've got your paintings. So, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, from an admission standpoint. Yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Let me see. Should I throw tomatoes at Harvard? <laughs> yeah, or? that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, the correct answer was B, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So that is points for... Both Sally and Laura. All right. Thankfully, my wife watches a lot of heist shows. Love a good heist show. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a terrific movie about it. There is. Um, there is really yeah. fabulous. Uh, sorry, sorry, you missed that one, Kate. But the movie will come around again. <laughs> <laughs> Study up and uh, come back. All right. Uh, w- another multiple choice question: uh, Which impressionist painter? famous for paintings of water lilies, suffered from cataracts in both eyes, which destroyed his ability to distinguish the colors of, tu- of paint in his tubes and led to a surreal, surreal color palette in his later work. Was it A, Pierre-Auguste Renoir? Was it B, Claude Monet? Was it C, Edouard Manet? Or was it D, Mary Cassatt? 
I'm gonna. This is Sally. I'm gonna go B. Claude. <laughs> well, what? extra points for Claude. pronunciation. Claude. <laughs> Thank half, you. Half Thank you, Bill. It was really the. It was the breathiness, Sally. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> this is Laura, and I'm gonna go B. Monet. <laughs> I'm. I'm also gonna go B because my bearded dragon's name is Claude. Oh, nice. Good. Oh, how's how's Claude the bearded dragon's eyesight? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know lots about them. I can tell you about dogs and cats, but he just kind of he sits there. I don't know. That's what he does. He sits there. Well, again, however she got there, uh, the correct answer is B. Claude Monet. So that is a point across the board. Maddie, it's pronounced Claude. <laughs> I think it's Cloud. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 for sure. I'm not pronouncing it correctly. A hundred percent. Cloudy. Uh, but yeah. I've looked at clouds on both sides. Yeah. Oh, but no, <laughs> All right, uh, we got time for another multiple choice question. Thank goodness. Okay, uh, so the final multiple choice question that we have: uh, the work. Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue 3 by American post-war artist Barnett Newman enraged and sickened viewers while it was on display in Amsterdam, leading to its destruction by a vandal with a box cutter? What was the content of the painting that caused such an intense reaction and backlash? Was it A a depiction of a graphic and grisly murder? Was it B, a depiction of holy figures in compromising positions? Was it C, images of the violence of World War II? Or was it D, mostly red? It was just 18 feet tall and mostly red. Bill, this is the funny part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that it was. It must be time for a break. Really, overtime for a break. How did we get here? I, I just hope the answer to that is red, because everything else was so grim. <laughs> this, is, this is. Oh Laura, my God! Okay, I, we're gonna. I, I, I'm well, in for a dime, in for a dollar. What's the answer? I'm going oh, for no, most. They got to get. They got to guess first. This okay. is Laura. I'm going mostly red because we got the tomato soup theme and. And uh, everything else just makes me sad. Mm -hmm. So mostly yeah. red. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is Sally. And though I loved the way Maddie read all of the mm -hmm. choices and the images that will forever be burned in my mind, You're I am welcome. also <laughs> going to choose mostly red. Maddie, what was the name of the painting again? Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue? <laughs> Three. Yeah, that was my question. I, I wasn't really listening to all the answers because I was just like, why? What happened? What, what was going on with one and two? Mm -hmm. That there, that a third <laughs> yeah. needed to exist. Yeah. Um, I'll go. I'll go red too, though. Well, somehow okay. you're all correct. Oh. It uh, was just yeah. thank God. mostly red, and everyone was so angry yeah. that it was just yeah. mostly red. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've I've been to that museum and and not understood. <laughs> anything that was happening <laughs> and it made me angry much like modern dance i'm sorry if it's that far over my head i wonder why i paid 18 dollars. did you bring a box cutter no no they're, they're, a shredder they're better at checking a tomato yeah. i shredded it in my mind yes <laughs> well how are we doing for scores bill 
Well, I'd like to point out that uh, Laura has hung in there very well. Uh, she has uh, two or three points, depending on how generous the scoring is. We'll decide that during the break. Um, I want to say, Sally, uh, you've done remarkably well, too, given your apparent lack of knowledge on the subject matter, which has been just and just beautifully displayed Thank and covered you. up, too. I really, really congratulate you on that. My pleasure. And Kate. Wow, Kate is way out in front with four correct answers, which makes her the superstar. On the other hand, Kate, there's a whole second half of the quiz to go, so don't celebrate quite yet. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back more at the monthly Comedy Comedy Quiz right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org.
And this is our monthly comedy comedy quiz. Let me turn the microphone back over to our MC, Maddie Benjamin. Maddie. Thank you so much for going back to the comedy quiz with us. Uh, we'll be back, be back in just a moment. But first, if you're curious about trying out improv, uh, registration is now open at happiervalley.com for improv for scaredy cats. Um, so if you want to do what these funny people do, um, it's a one-day workshop that is open for the improv curious. So you should go ahead and take advantage of that and sign up. Uh, but for now, uh, we've left our panelists entirely enraged. Um, and we'll see if we can come back for that uh, with these open response questions. How are you, are you folks feeling creative? Feeling open, yes. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, great. So this will, there is no, um, there are no uh, multiple choice answers for this. So you'll just, uh, whenever, shine, yep, whenever you think you have the answer, <laughs> chime in and we'll hear from all of our panelists before uh, we hear the correct answer. Okay. Okay. So in 2006, Morris Aegis, known for huge interactive works of public art, created Dreamscapes 5, a giant inflatable work that participants could walk through. Unfortunately, it all went wrong while on display in a public park in the UK when what happened? Oh, I've got it, and I know it. Hang on. <laughs> um, Is that what you mean by I've got it? Yes. <laughs> what uh, happened, Kate? It, I read this article. Actually, a porcupine walked by. Mm touched the side of it because it got startled by the kids that were playing there and then the whole thing psh, deflated on top of everybody that was inside. Everyone was okay though. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say that um, a small dog took mm -hmm. a bite out of it and it flew off the ground mm -hmm. and flew around London and ran into the eye and that was that. I also read an article about this, Kate, um, and there were some very swanky, well-dressed uh, goers to this exhibit, one of whom was wearing a pretty pretty profound pair of high heels as they were walking through, and poof, there it goes. Oh, that one sounds actually right. Wow. Uh, was your article real? I don't know what Let's articles out, Kate. any of you were reading, uh, because what actually happened was a gust of wind detached it from its moorings, and it floated away with 30 people inside. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Did they and it was just seen over Canada, and we <laughs> shot it there. Yes. <laughs> Oops. Uh, so while none of the answers were correct, I did appreciate all of them. So however that turns into points, that's up to you, Bill. <laughs> that's amazing. That was said with such certainty, such mm -hmm. absolute <laughs> conviction. Yeah. I was convinced. Yeah. I was convinced they were absolutely knew it. They read the article. They got it. I am shocked, shocked at your dishonesty. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Bill, I think they should go to law school. <laughs> we work hard on that. There's potential here. All right. Uh, question, uh, our next question. Uh, a gallery visitor in Miami lived my worst nightmare when she accidentally knocked over and shattered oh. a Jeff Koons sculpture that was shaped like what? Uh, shit, Laura, it was shaped like a rubber balloon dog, a blue rubber balloon dog. And I, I still can't stop being itchy about the idea of being that person. Yes, that does uh, suck a ton for that person. Mm -hmm. um, but it was actually shaped like a very tall fern with the fo fern follicles uh, oftentimes grab potentially grabbing the passerbyers, <laughs> but this one particular museum worker was... was fern follicles? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yes, fern follicles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, anytime I hear Miami Art Festival, I only think of charging a phone. Um, I'm not going to go into any more details about that. Great. You can Google it. Uh, and uh, so I am distracted by that. I'm going to say it was a giant cell phone. Great. Okay. Yeah. And the correct answer was a blue balloon animal dog. So that point goes to Laura. And with that, Bill, where do you think our scores are at? It's Kate and Laura in the lead at four points each. Sally, I'm oh. sorry, I don't know how to break this to you. It's fine. You're last. That's, you that's just went flat out last. Take, you take your fern, fern follicles and, 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 yeah. and, and What was that, fern follicles? Yeah. You should get two more points. I agree. We're all tied up. Two extra points for Sally and we're tied. Well, well, one for each follicle. I hope that everyone playing along at home did better than we did. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us for the comedy quiz. If you would like to see these funny people in action, you can see Kate, Sally, and I perform with our group Not In Charge this Saturday night. Uh, we're bring your little ones to the Happier Valley family show in the afternoon at the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. You can visit happiervalley.com to see the full calendar listings of classes and events. Thanks so much, everybody. And for those of us who will continue uh, with this show for the next hour, we have coming up Feminist Future with Professor Carrie Baker and Jennifer McKenna on crisis pregnancy centers. For those who are listening at the five o'clock hour, we thank you so very much for being with us, for understanding the importance not only of talking the talk, but walking the walk. We appreciate your sharing some of your day with us, and we'll see you back here again tomorrow. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1415-1400-1240 WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by General Steel. I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. Russian President Putin says Russia is pulling out of the last remaining arms control treaty between the world's two main nuclear powers. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken responding to the report. The announcement by Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in New START is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. We'll be watching carefully to see what Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and, and that of our allies. The treaty called the New Start bans nuclear weapons testing. It has been in effect since the Cold War. In Poland, President Biden is meeting with NATO leaders discussing the Russian war against Ukraine. I can proudly say that our support for Ukraine remains unwavering. I'm Stephen Portnoy in Warsaw. The president's remarks here come hours after Vladimir Putin delivered his annual State of the Nation address in Moscow. In a speech that ran nearly two hours, Putin railed against the West, accusing the U.S. and its allies of starting the war. We were doing everything possible, really everything possible, to settle that problem by peaceful means. The war against Ukraine is now entering its second year. 
Another earthquake has hit Turkey and Syria. It comes 15 days after a quake that claimed the lives of more than 44,000 people. This latest quake was a 6.4 magnitude, much smaller than the first one. Turkey's Disaster Management Authority said today's quake killed six people and injured 294 others. It struck in the same area as the quake that hit previously. Rescue efforts from that quake have tapered off into recovery operations in several of Turkey's provinces. Reports out of rebel-held northern Syria have been less comprehensive. Brace yourselves. A major storm is coming. A potentially historic snowstorm stretching from the four corners all the way into the northeast today through Friday. It could actually drop up to two feet of snow in some places. That's Weather Channel meteorologist Stephanie Abrams. Health concerns continue in East Palestine, Ohio. CBS's Roxana Saberi reports. A medical clinic is set to open in East Palestine, Ohio, where experts are expected to meet residents who have suffered a variety of health issues since a toxic train derailment earlier this month. Ohio's Governor Mike DeWine announced last week that the state would be opening the clinic, saying residents' concerns are legitimate, though he also said air and municipal water quality tests are so far coming back fine. Roxana Saberi, CBS News. Today is Fat Tuesday. That means tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. This is CBS News. Business owners, General Steel can help save you thousands by owning your own custom-designed buildings. Call 888-98-STEEL or visit GeneralSteel.com. God, I'm so stressed. It's a brand new year and our business is busier than ever. Uma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 35 features. Uma? Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Starts at $19.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Uma. Now you're feeling it. Visit Uma.com. That's O-O-M-A dot com to learn more. Uma. Smart communications for the smarter business. This week, Staples has deals so good, you're going to want to sit down. Are you sitting? I'll wait. Great. Right now during Staples Sit-A-Thon, select chairs are up to 50% off, like the Union and Scale Essentials Meshback Task Chair. Now just $89.99 at Staples. You save $90. Plus get two two-ounce bottles of Purell hand sanitizer, free with the Staples Connect app. So take a seat or two. Right now at Staples, the working, learning, and saving story. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Jury selection is underway in Hampton Superior Court today in the trial of a former Westfield police detective. Brian Fanyon is charged with the 2018 murder of his wife, Amy Fanyon. He is alleged to have killed her during an argument while he was home on a lunch break. Amy Fanyon's death was initially ruled a suicide. Students and young people today are struggling with their mental health more than ever. Dr. Deborah Offner wrote a book called Educators as First Responders to point out the need for educators to notice and intervene when they see a student struggling with their emotional well-being. To function adequately as a student, you need to be mentally well. And the way to equip people, I think, is to make it a community or sort of village problem on your school campus so that it's not just the psychologists or the school counselors or the dean of students that are attending to things, but it's all the adults in the building. According to Offner's book, more than 36% of young people have persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness in the last year. And 32% of children have experienced an anxiety disorder by age 18. The Community Preservation Act Committee in Hadley is considering a request to stabilize the former Russell School and prevent continued deterioration. The CPA is looking at a $1.24 million request from the Russell School Committee with support from the Municipal Building Committee. The CPA will meet on February 27th and will finalize recommendations and a funding plan 
that would be presented to annual town meeting in May. Any lingering snow this morning will quickly taper off. A couple of flurries possible middle of the day. Then another round of rain and snow showers this afternoon. A high of 38 to 42. Scattered rain and snow showers early this evening, then drying out. Overnight low of 24 to 30. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Chance of some late day rain, sleet, and snow. A high of 40 to 44. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. Yes, and we are here. Bill, it's really exciting. Uh, I know you're there in, in Africa, and I am here in the studio, and I'm very excited about this uh, segment, which we're going to become a monthly segment. Yeah. And um, it's with Professor Carrie Baker of Smith, and we're going to be looking, uh, it's going to be called Feminist Futures, and I'm going to ask in a minute, Carrie, why Feminist Futures, and we're going to have the first of those, I guess, We'll call them Baker's Dozen yeah. <laughs> guests that we're going to have on Feminist Futures. So how did you come up with the name of Feminist Futures, and what are we trying to achieve with this segment? So I teach at Smith College, and I teach young people a lot about injustice, and sometimes that can get depressing. And so I think it's really important to envision a future, a positive future. And, you know, especially post-Dobbs, when abortion rights are being attacked, when rates of violence against women are at record highs, I think we need to envision a more positive future. So I'm going to bring local activists that are doing amazing work. We have such a rich array of folks of all ages here doing work on creating a feminist future. And I'm going to have them come and speak about their work and speak about what their visions for a feminist future is. Including you, Professor Carrie Baker. So who do we have today? <laughs> we have Jennifer McKenna, who is a Northampton-based reproductive and gender equity consultant with 30 years of advocacy experience on the local and state levels. She's the co-founder of the California Women's Law Center, and she now um, she has worked, she's worked with state-based law centers for for decades. And her current work focuses very much on what's called crisis pregnancy centers, which are anti-abortion centers that try to interfere with access to reproductive health care. She is the co-author of uh, the most recent comprehensive look at what CPCs do and how they operate. It's called Design to Deceive, a study of the crisis pregnancy center industry in nine states. So we're really thrilled to have her here today to talk a little bit about this. Uh, thank you for being here today, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, Carrie, uh, on this, this program. I'm very excited that you've decided to do this and that the station has launched this really proactive envisioning effort. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you, Jennifer. So as you know, the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade um, last summer, and since then, many states have banned abortion. I think the current count is 13 states have banned abortion starting at fertilization, and Georgia at six weeks, uh, Florida at 15 weeks, and other eight states have bans that have been currently blocked by courts but could go into effect. And while these new laws and legal challenges get most of the headlines, a lot of anti-abortion organizing is occurring at the grassroots in the form of these anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers. 
um, otherwise known as fake abortion clinics, which are designed to interfere with access to abortion. There are over 2,700 fake clinics in the U.S., including 30 right here in Massachusetts. So I want to ask you, um, based on your research and work, um, how do these CPCs operate? So we called our report Designed to Deceive for a Reason. Uh, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and we called the Crisis Pregnancy Center an industry for a reason. Mm-hmm. The Crisis Pregnancy Center industry is part of, it's a pillar of the anti-abortion movement. They, for the most part, people will see crisis pregnancy centers identified in the community as pregnancy resource centers, even pregnancy health clinics or women's health clinics. They are not women's health clinics. They are not reproductive health clinics. They are religious organizations, nonprofit religious organizations, whose mission is to block people to, from accessing contraception uh, as well as abortion and to convert people to evangelical Christianity. They use deceptive advertising and marketing, um, including positioning next to real reproductive health clinics, mimicking their signage, having volunteers in you know, medical scrubs out on the sidewalk, um, and talking to people who are headed to the real reproductive health clinic. Um, they offer free pregnancy tests, um, but they're over-the-counter urine tests, um, and they claim to be medical providers by providing pregnancy tests and also free ultrasounds increasingly, which is a real concern. Anyone um, in Massachusetts can purchase a sonogram machine and do an ultrasound. CPCs are manipulatively using ultrasound um, and free ultrasounds to get people in the door who have unplanned pregnancies or are intending to to carry a pregnancy to term and can't afford an ultrasound um, or real real medical care. Um, they get people in the door using by deceptive practices, particularly masquerading as health clinics these days. Yeah, yeah. So once people are in there, they think they're at a health clinic, and they maybe reveal personal information and perhaps rely on what these folks are saying to them. How, how is that dangerous? I mean, what, what is it that's happening there? So what's clear is that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of crisis pregnancy centers are not licensed in any way. They're not, that, therefore they're not regulated in any way, mm-hmm. including they don't have to go to operate under HIPAA protections, under uh, patient healthcare privacy laws. Many claim to, but nobody is requiring them to do that. So Oftentimes, what people have reported who've been to CPCs, and calling them CPCs as shorthand for crisis pregnancy centers, uh, is that they walk in, they've made an appointment, they walk in, and they have to fill in what looks like a medical information, medical history form, like they would see in a doctor's office. CPCs typically participate in data collection among clients um, by using an online platform that was created and, ho- and is held by a global anti-abortion group that called Heartbeat International. They created a data management platform for CPC clients and people in individual crisis pregnancy centers, including here in Massachusetts, collect personal and medical information from pregnant people who come to these centers thinking they're healthcare providers. And they feed this data into a centralized database. That is dangerous, particularly post-Roe, when, you know, post-Dobbs, when 
there is really abortion surveillance happening in this country and criminalization of abortion. abortion. Right. That data could be used in a criminal prosecution of a pregnant person. So like somebody coming from another state that maybe bans abortion, comes here for care, right. they mistakenly end up at one of these CPCs, and then the CPC could potentially report that information right. back to their home state right. and endanger them, That's potentially. Right. That's right. And there's no protection for individual pregnant women um, who've provided information to crisis pregnancy centers. Right. And there's a whole sort of infrastructure within the crisis pregnancy center world to collect dig and store digital data on, on pregnant people. It's terrifying. It's absolutely it is terrifying. terrifying. So, Jennifer, what about the health risks that CPCs pose? Yeah, so, first of all, I'll say that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists publicly have called crisis pregnancy centers a public health risk. Mm -hmm. um, they are, their aim, their explicit mission is to reach pregnant people, with, particularly people with unplanned pregnancies, before they access real health care mm -hmm. uh, in order to stop them from accessing abortion. Therefore, people who are uninsured, young people in particular, whom they especially target, who are looking for information online about abortion or other reproductive health care, um, oftentimes, including here in Northampton, will get on their search result a CPC at the top of the results. Yeah. If you don't know better, you go to that CPC and instead of going to a real health care provider. Mm -hmm. and in, Abortion, we know, is absolutely time-sensitive, so that people can be delayed from, ac from accessing abortion. Also, prenatal care is critical. CPCs keep people from accessing prenatal care. They typically don't even refer clients to pre for prenatal care. So they give them misinformation about abortion as well, don't they? That's right, yes. And that's one of the ways your listeners can know they can protect themselves and their friends um, against CPCs is if you look on a CPC website, you'll see lots and lots of information, misinformation, disinformation, risks, threats about uh, abortion care um, and contraception, about the risks and the lack of efficacy of, of contraception. So they're telling, giving people misinformation about really basic reproductive health care and that, that confuses people and makes them insecure about future health care access. Right. So they're told that abortion is dangerous when, in fact, it's very, very safe. Or yes. they're told that contraceptive is not as effective when, in fact, it can be quite effective. That's right. That's and right. it's to try to discourage people from accessing those, that That's form right. of care. Yes. They claim that there's a link between breast cancer and abortion. Yeah. The American Cancer Society says no. Right. They claim that there's a link between depression and PTSD and abortion. American Psychological Association says no. Yeah. Um, they're promoting a really problematic and dangerous uh, claim and practice that they call abortion pill reversal, claiming that you can stop a medication abortion in process with high-dose progesterone. And there's CPCs right here in Western Massachusetts that are, say, are saying they are offering, they're providing that high-progesterone treatment to women who supposedly take the first medication in, a, in an abortion medication protocol and then regret it. They're really trying to stigmatize medication abortion, yeah. make people insecure about taking medica medication abortion, and promote this myth that women have regrets about starting an abortion. Right. Well, Carrie Baker and um, Jennifer McKenna, uh, I know last summer Amherst, there was a proposal in the city council to uh, ban false advertising by these pregnancy crisis centers. And I know Northampton and East Hampton have, have thought about that as well. What's the status of these local measures 
to stop that false yes, yes. information. I would say thank you for that question because it's it points to the good news, which is really, especially here in Massachusetts, there are our policymakers, our public officials on every level are taking real action, uh, particularly on the on the deceptive advertising um, practiced by CPCs and the public health risk that they pose that poses to pregnant people in this in our state and coming to our state for abortion care. Um, on the local level. Um, Somerville and Cambridge have passed uh, passed ordinances prohibiting deceptive advertising by crisis pregnancy centers. East Hampton has proposed an ordinance, and there are other Western Massachusetts as well as other regional cities and towns across the state who are have proposed and are considering similar measures. Our state attorney general issued a consumer advisory um, warning against crisis pregnancy centers. They're not reproductive health clinics. They use deceptive advertising. Our Department of Health has issued the same warning. Our Mass Health program has issued its own warning against deceptive practices by crisis pregnancy centers and saying they're not mass health clinics, they're not reproductive health clinics. Our state legislators are proposing bills to address deceptive advertising and other problematic CPC practices. And I, which leads me to ask you this, Carrie Baker, because you're not just a professor of women and, and gender studies, you also are an attorney. Yeah. Is there a proof problem in proving that what they do is deceptive when they do what Jennifer just described? Well, what what we're, deceptive advertising has to do with they tr- say they provide abortion services when they don't, or they uh, they claim you know things to lure people in and then they don't provide that. So that's what that's covering. It's not so much covering what happens once the person is in the clinic and they're given misinformation. Um, you know, it's tricky because there was a Supreme Court case in 2018, um, Nifla versus Becerra, where California had passed a law requiring CPCs to put a sign on the door saying they don't provide abortion and that abortion is available in the state at, you know, other locations. And that was challenged under the under the First Amendment, free speech, and it went to the very conservative Supreme Court, and they struck down that law. So there's concerns about how to draft this kind of ordinance in a way that resists, um, you know, that that's legal. But the ordinances that have been passed in Connecticut and here in Massachusetts are very narrow, very specific, and um, have so far withstood any sort of challenge. Uh, I do hope so. We are going to take a break. We are, uh, I'm, I'm so happy that we're here, and it's such an important segment that we're going to be enjoying every month, Feminist Futures with Professor Carrie Baker and Her guest today, Jennifer McKenna, talking about these crisis pregnancy centers. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Do stay with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 
You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. For some kids, home isn't a safe place, and in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Feminist Futures, a segment with Professor Carrie Baker and her guest today, Jennifer McKenna, talking about crisis pregnancy centers. Great. Yeah, Jennifer, um, I want to just ask you about the deceptive advertising aspect of the problem. I know a lot of these ordinances are addressing that part of it. Um, how is that going to work? Yes. I, I just want to note that even the crisis pregnancy centers that don't claim to provide abortion or uh, to telegraph that they provide abortion, are many are claiming to be medical clinics or healthcare providers, and they're not. So that's one deceptive practice that's pretty common. Um, they also often claim to provide unbiased, all options, support, and counseling. I mean, clearly that's deceptive. They're anti-abortion organizations. That's their mission. So to claim to be providers of comprehensive health care, reproductive health care, and all options, unbiased counseling, is just straight up a lie. So that, that, that they sort, they're sort of the foundational deceptive advertising practices that you see. And their uh, websites often echo all of that. Um, so the deceptive advertising um, ordinances that have been passed and proposed very simply require truth in advertising by um, these crisis pregnancy centers. So doesn't Massachusetts have consumer protection laws, and why don't they apply to CPCs? Yeah, so our, our state consumer protection statute, like many states' um, state consumer protection statutes, focuses and mainly applies to... Uh, commercial transactions. So for-profit entities, businesses that engage in deceptive practices that result in a financial harm to someone. Therefore, not CPCs, which are nonprofit providers of free services, are not governed by our state consumer protection laws. Is the, are, is the legislature or the attorney general working on this and trying to make sure that cons consumers are, in fact, protected? Yes. I think there's a... My sense, my understanding is that there is serious concern 
in the Attorney General's office. There was under Maura Healy, and there is under our, t our new Attorney General. Um, that crisis pregnancy centers are duping consumers and posing a health risk to uh, residents of Massachusetts. And they're doing everything in their power to figure out how to hold them accountable. Um, and that many of our state legislators, including right from, West, from Western Massachusetts, I mean, proudly say it's our Western Massachusetts legislators are right, way out in front on developing strategies, legislative strategies to address deceptive advertising, the manipulative use of ultrasound, um, and the, the problematic data collection with no privacy protections. Right. What about um, the medical risks? I mean, how is it? I mean, are these licensed, the people running these ultrasound machines, are they licensed professionals? Are they giving, they're, they're clearly not giving information according to medical standards. How, how do they get away with that? And right. is there any way to address yeah. that? Again, we get back to the fact that they're nonprofit religious organizations. They're not met licensed medical facilities for the most part. They're the completely unregulated. There are a couple in Massachusetts, maybe three, um, that have some sort of Department of Health license, but it seems to be a very basic community health license that doesn't require much, but isn't really a very strong regulation and doesn't seem to govern their use of ultrasound. So, and we've heard a lot of anecdotal reports, not just from clients, but also from doctors who have seen women who've had a, an ultrasound at a CPC and, and gotten the wrong gestational age, learned that they're much more pregnant or much less pregnant than they thought, who've missed up ectopic pregnancies, and women have ended up in emergency rooms recently in Worcester um, as a result of a, um, a, a botched, essentially a botched, um, mis misread Ultrasound. or intentionally misread, who knows, yeah. ultrasound at a crisis pregnancy center. There was a case in Kentucky where the CPC was using unsterile transvaginal ultrasound wands. So that, in other words, they were not properly sterilizing the ultra ultrasound wand before they inserted it into a woman's vagina, potentially introducing infections. So if that's going on here in Massachusetts, there's nobody looking at that, nobody regulating it, making sure they're using the right sterilization That's right. I'm really glad you raised that. That recent report just came out in early February, um, and it came from a, an, R, an RN who had been volunteering at the CPC and was horrified at the lack of sanitary uh, practices. And one of, I think this is a really important story for us to know about in Massachusetts because we have, it raises the question, do we know whether CPCs here are doing transvaginal as well as transabdominal ultrasounds? Yeah. Are they volunteers doing those? Are they doing them on minors? We know they target young, young women yeah. um, with unplanned pregnancy. So they're certainly seeing women under, under 16, under 18. Yeah, there's a city councilor in Somerville, Kristen Strezzo, who is looking into whether volunteers at CPC should be Corey checked. I mean, if you know somebody who has a criminal sexual abuse history and they're doing a transvaginal ultrasound on a 14-year-old exactly. or a 15-year-old, that's terrifying. Yes, absolutely terrifying. And the state's doing nothing to oversee that and make sure that's not happening. Right. And that scenario really dramatizes the risk and dangers. Um, and, of CPC, and that they're rogue operations, yeah. essentially, that are getting to do whatever they want to do 
um, to advance their anti-abortion mission yeah. with uh, with no accountability. And religious I think, I think uh, listeners could infer what it means, but just in case you don't know, Corey's is a Criminal Offender Record Information Act, right. so you could look at somebody's record, and yeah. they're not doing that. You're no, saying. they're not. So to see if somebody has a sexual abuse history. And we know that evangelical and Catholic organizations have a torrid history of tolerating sexual abuse. And you know, really propagating it. And I I worry, you know, that these centers are operating with no state oversight. And like you say, potentially, I mean, seeing anybody, but particularly seeing minors is very worrisome to me. Right. So we're about out of time. So I want to ask you my my final question, which ties back to the title of this program, which is uh, Feminist Futures. I want to ask you, what is your feminist future? So I'm so glad you asked me this question. It made me really think about it. Um, there are two parts to my feminist future. One is a world in which women have real self-determination, absolute control over whether and when to become pregnant and bear and raise children, where abortion is accessible without any gatekeepers, and we have a full array of resources, healthcare, and material support when we want to continue a pregnancy and parent. The second part is it's, it, the feminist future would be a world in which we collectively, men and women together, confront the fact that men create patriarchy for whatever reason, where whole societal systems and structures that subjugate and control women and gender nonconforming people, and that this tendency is a deadly risk factor for all of us and for the planet that was as our only home. So in a feminist future, we would acknowledge that with clear eyes together and create societal systems and structures and norms that protect us all against the existential threat of patriarchy. Wow, that was incredible. Jennifer McKenna, thank you so much. For president, Jennifer McKenna for president. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, well, yesterday was President's Day. You have a chance here, Jennifer. (laughs) Thank you so much. Carrie, that was just, it's so important that you're going to be doing this segment with us. We're so grateful and honored that you're going to be doing it. And um, that was an incredibly important and informative report on these dreadful crisis pregnancy centers. (laughs) We are going to take a break. When we come back, we have Playbill with Jackie Walsh, and we're going to be uh, talking to Shakespearean scholar Anne Berman. She is going to be speaking in the the behind-the-scenes series of lectures at Shakespeare and Company. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Jury selection is underway in Hampton Superior Court today in the trial of a former Westfield police detective. Brian Fanyon is charged with the 2018 murder of his wife, Amy Fanyon. He is alleged to have killed her during an argument while he was home on a lunch break. Amy Fanyon's death was initially ruled a suicide. Students and young people today are struggling with their mental health more than ever. Dr. Deborah Offner wrote a book called Educators as First Responders to point out the need for educators to notice and intervene when they see a student struggling with their emotional well-being. To function adequately as a student, you need to be mentally well. And the way to equip people, I think, is to make it a community or sort of village problem on your school campus so that it's not just the psychologists or the school counselors or the dean of students that are attending to things, but it's all the adults in the building. According to Offner's book, more than 36% of young people have persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness in the last year. And 32% of children have experienced an anxiety disorder by age 18. 
The Community Preservation Act Committee in Hadley is considering a request to stabilize the former Russell School and prevent continued deterioration. The CPA is looking at a $1.24 million request from the Russell School Committee with support from the Municipal Building Committee. The CPA will meet on February 27th and will finalize recommendations and a funding plan that would be presented to annual town meeting in May. Any lingering snow this morning will quickly taper off. A couple of flurries possible middle of the day. Then another round of rain and snow showers this afternoon. A high of 38 to 42. Scattered rain and snow showers early this evening, then drying out. Overnight low of 24 to 30. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Chance of some late day rain, sleet, and snow. A high of 40 to 44. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. Inflation may be slowing a bit, but don't expect a lot of relief at the supermarket. The head of the world's largest food company expects prices to continue to rise this year. Nestle CEO Mark Schneider said his firm is still recovering from inflationary damage and doesn't expect to lower prices. With the Lent season getting underway, fast food chains across the country are gearing up for foodies looking for seafood on the go, along with other non-meat menu items. Popeyes and Chick-fil-A, two chains famous for chicken, have added new non-meat sandwiches to their menu. Does your dog or cat need health insurance? Well, they might. Experts say veterinary care continues to get more expensive, especially with inflation. Studies show that pet owners can spend as much as $1,500 a year on routine care. Many plans can be customized to fit your needs. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. This is uh, our uh, weekly Playbill segment with uh, Jackie Walsh. Hello, Jackie. Hey there, Buzz. I know we're going to be um, in- introduced to Ann Berman, who is a Shakespearean scholar, and she's going to talk to us about a series of behind-the-scenes look at Shakespearean Company that's going to be running. But meanwhile, what's happening in theater regionally here? So there's a few things. I just wanted to start out that, you know, this is never a complete list, but if you go to Pioneer Valley Theater with an com. You can get a list of everything going on locally. It doesn't cover the Berkshires, but it's a good place to start. Yes. Um, So there is Clue, which is playing at Exit 17 Theater in Ludlow, February 17th through the 26th, based on the classic board game. I assume it's some sort of mystery. Um, And then we have Arash at UMass coming up. It's a Persian story about someone who 
carries out a heroic act that changes the country's future. It's directed by an Iranian director, Benham Alabashi, who will be here next week. Um, that runs February 24th through March 4th. Then we also have, I'm very excited about this, The Glass Menagerie, mm. a classic, classic by Tennessee Williams. That's at the Majestic, February 23rd through April 2nd. <clears throat> so if you don't know, it's about a faded Southern belle, Amanda, who's desperate to marry off her daughter, Laura, and she worries about her son, Tom, who's <clears throat> kind of the dad of the family without the dad being there and who constantly considers just ditching the family. So mm. consider one of the most significant plays of the 20th century. I didn't recognize names of the actors, but Micah Plunkett, who's come here, who I consider maybe the best female actor in the Valley, is she? she's the understudy for Amanda. So, um, you know, I'm not wishing that the main person can't be there, <laughs> but if she's sick or something, Micah is great, and I'm sure that means... All the actors are great. She played Maggie and Kat on a hot tin roof in Ashfield. She was incredible. I remember. Yeah. So there is a connection to Northampton in this area. So also Shakespeare and Company has this really interesting thing. It's called Behind the Curtain, a lecture series about Shakespeare, hosted by Anne Berman, who started out in Queens, ended up in around Boston, went to London, studied with people associated with the Globe Theater, and is now helping at Shakespeare and Company. She, this last weekend, talked about Romeo and Juliet. There's Midsummer Night's Dream will be talked about. Jealousy. Mm. I'm so curious about which play she'll talk about there. And then something about Henry VI. Um, and these are all free talks, and they happen in Lennox at the theater. And um, she is here on, on via telephone. Hi, Anne. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Surprised to see the snow this morning. I don't know if it's snowed out where you are. Oh, yeah. A little dusting. Did you get much? <laughs> Not much. No, good, good, good. I guess, unless you're a skier. Um, <laughs> so where do people get more information? There's several dates, and I think there are more uh, lectures being planned. Where do people get more information about the lecture series? Right. So people can go to the Shakespeare and Company website. That's shakespeare.org to find out more about the entire season that's coming up, as well as the talks, which include one on Midsummer Night's Dream on March 4th, one on Jealousy on March 18th, and then one on Henry VI, Part Two, on April 1st. And they're all at 10.30 on Saturday mornings, or am I wrong about that? Yes, they're 10.30 Saturday mornings. They're free to the public. We would just ask that you register ahead of time. And uh, the first one went... Pretty well, I think, last Saturday morning. Fantastic. And what's really exciting, besides your expertise and just being able to, for an hour, hear people talk about Shakespeare, is that you have directors, cast members, costumers, other design team members as guests. So um, for me, it's always exciting to hear sort of insider stories. Is that an exciting part of it for you? Absolutely. The, the series started last summer. We did five talks last summer, and I had directors... And then, actually, because one of the directors got stuck at Heathrow and couldn't make it back, we had a quick guest appearance um, you know, on short notice by the costume designer and the set designer. Uh -huh. And it was wonderful. I think they were happy to be able to talk about their craft and their skill and share their expertise with the audience. And people just love to see what's behind the magic of theater. So we are moving forward. And 
uh, Govan Lobauer, who is the costume director at Shakespeare and Company, as well as Patrick Brennan, who is one of the set designers, will be part of three of the four talks that are going to be happening. Right. I think costumers spend more time on plays than any other one person. Um, so, yes. Mm -hmm. So you talked with Govan Lobauer, the costume designer for um, Shakespeare and Company. You talked last Saturday about Romeo and Juliet and how the costumes impact the audience. Can you just give us a little teeny wrap-up about what what that was? Sure. Uh, two things. One is that the production that Shakespeare and Company is doing right now of Romeo and Juliet is a touring production. Yes. So people will be able to see it, actually, at Shakespeare and Company on March 25th in the afternoon and then on the evening of April 22nd. But the the production was designed to be a touring production. So it's about 90 minutes and it features seven actors who play all the roles. So the constraints for Govan designing the costumes were that they had to enable actors to make quick changes. So you may have somebody walking off stage as one character and coming back a few seconds later as someone else. So do they, so they wear have to be able to do that. Do they wear seven <laughs> layers of costumes? Oh, I'll tell you about the best. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it seems like they're probably seven. But uh, so they need to be able to do quick changes. And also the costumes need to be able to be packed up, put in bins and carted to the next place easily because they're moving from spot to spot as they do the tour. So a lot of constraints on Govan. But as she talks about it, her job is to help the actors embody their characters to make their jobs easier. And so she's also thinking about how can she help the actors to uh, inhabit their characters more fully. And it was really wonderful to see that the, she was able to show the costumes that the touring company is using right now. And she also was able to show us that one of the actors is playing Friar Lawrence and the nurse. And twice in the play has to be both characters kind of at the same time. So she showed us how the nurse's costume actually fits over the friar's costume. And at one point when the nurse has to start talking to the friar. She whips off her nurse costume, and underneath are the friar's robes. And and she has a hat in her nurse's costume apron that she puts on that is the oh, friar's hat. That's genius. Uh, I thought you were going to tell us live. it was split vertically, you know. <laughs> um, so I am. So you're talking about months, Midsummer Night's Dream, March fourth. I have a student from Kashmir living with us. He is. Um, can't read it. He's one of the leads in it at the Academy at Charlemont. Um, so I'm sort of mm -hmm. immersed in that play right now. So what what aspect of the play will you, not to give it all away, but tell us something about what you'll be talking about. Well, it's a much more complicated plot than Romeo and Juliet, certainly, because we have multiple couples and multiple settings. So we start off in the court, we move to the forest. So Govan, for example, will have to design costumes if she were doing this production that you know work in the court also work in the forest the production that shakespeare and company is going to be doing this summer will be held in the new spruce theater outdoors so there are also the questions of how do you design costumes for actors who are going to be performing outdoors where in the berkshires it could be 45 degrees or it could be 95 degrees True. so how do you design things that are going to make enable them to be comfortable uh, in a wide range of settings, so very different than designing costumes for an indoor performance. And you know, it was, it was interesting, so, Ann Berman, my, when my wife and I visited London uh, before the, just before the pandemic, uh, we went to the Globe, 
and we mm-hmm. s- we saw a Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, there are the groundlings. The globe has been beautifully renovated, but it still has an open uh, ceiling. And it rained on the groundlings, on the people that were, they paid a little less for their seat, but they're just standing there in the rain and they didn't mind at all. So anybody who goes to Shakespeare and Company, whether it's 45 or 90, you should enjoy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a beautiful setting. And yeah, and I'm, yes, the Globe is a wonderful place to see a show and very different than any place else, for sure. Yeah. So one that I'm very interested in, and I have a quiz for Dan, who's sitting here, and um, Buzz and Bill. Uh, so she's talking about Shakespeare and jealousy. My question to you guys is what plays do you think she'll talk about? Hmm. I guess Othello. I was going to say Othello. Yeah. 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 And certainly Macbeth. There's a lot of jealousy in that. Mm. I'd say Romeo and Juliet has a little yeah. jealousy going on. Romeo yeah. and Juliet. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to start taking notes because you're 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 spreading out my net. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are like in the top five most popular plays. <laughs> if you're going to tell us it was Henry the something, we're going to be uh, sure five steps behind you. Well, if we tell you Titus be... Andronicus, then we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, jealousy is a theme that Shakespeare seems to have revisited over and over again, and Othello is definitely one of the ones that I'll be talking about because, you know, someone is gripped by irrational jealousy. He's provoked, but he also doesn't have any real evidence to um, underpin his jealousy, and it ends in a tragedy. Then we have Much Ado About Nothing, which Shakespeare and Company did last summer. I love that. Where one of the characters, again, is provoked into being very jealous of his fiancée and feels like she's been unfaithful to him, but he doesn't ask her. He doesn't ask for proof. He just takes the word of a guy who's known to be literally a bastard. So that's another, but it alone's happily ever after. So there's another, another ending. I just taught a course for Berkshire Ollie on the winter's tale. Again, King is possessed by um, completely irrational jealousy and Shakespeare manages to have that play work out where people get second chances at the end. It's kind of his most mature look um, at jealousy. And there's also Merry Wives of Windsor, uh, where one of the husbands is quite jealous uh, and is afraid that his wife is not being faithful to him. So there's at least four different ways. And then you've just given me a couple more that I could be looking at how how jealousy plays out uh, and how Shakespeare manages to take the same impulse and the same kind of craziness, really, and turn it into very different endings. And also what happens when, when somebody with a lot of power becomes insanely jealous. It's really different when the king becomes crazed with jealousy than it is when Mr. Ford in Merry Wives of Windsor becomes crazed with jealousy. Yeah, sounds yeah. scary. So I think we have to break, but um, I'm hoping that, you know, going and hearing you talk about Shakespeare and jealousy, people in the audience will get some answers how, to how <laughs> to um, tame their own Green beast. <laughs> and once again, Ann Berman, tell tell us when you're going to be um, doing this uh, lecture series, what it's called, and how people can find out about it. All right. So the series, it's every other Saturday right now. Uh, so the next one will be March 4th on Midsummer, March 18th on Jealousy, and April 1st on Henry the Sixth. There also will be a series over the summer. They're free 
open to the public. We'd love to have you come. They're at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, and you can visit their website, shakespeare.org. And I also have to give a quick shout-out to the volunteers. I joined as a volunteer. I'm still a volunteer, and we're happy to have people do things like garden, like help sponsor the talks, baking, uh, ushering, all different kinds of opportunities if you'd like to get more involved. Baking, cooking. Mine mm. eyes smell onions, I think. Is that what... Uh... <laughs> It comes from Midsummer. <laughs> anyway, we are talking to Ann Berman. It is Playbill with Jackie Walsh. We're going to take a break for just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413 775 8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office 
or contact us online through the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. So Dan Torres, producer and our sound engineer, you always find good music apropos to what we're talking about. What were we listening to when we went into the break and what were we listening to when we came out of it? It was Ophelia, the Luminaries. There so I, nice. it's related to Shakespeare, I guess. I think that's related to yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. So Jackie so, Walsh, we're back with Ann Berman on our Playbill Right, segment. and Anne is um, hosting several lectures about Shakespeare, free lectures, 10.30s on Saturdays through March and into April. This happens in Lenox. Um, Lenox also has a touring company, but these lectures are at, um, what is the name of the hall, Elaine Bernstein? It's the Bernstein Theater, yeah. There we go, yeah. So all right there. So I have a question uh, which struck me when... Um, Buzz was talking about the people at the Globe Theater when he saw Midsummer Night's Dream getting rained on. And it's the whole highbrow versus lowbrow um, thing. And I think a lot of people think of Shakespeare as highbrow, but I know originally, you know, the people, lots of working class people would come and watch the shows. Where do you see him falling in the highbrow versus lowbrow dichotomy? I think it's, He's the material is so rich that you can go either way. I think that he was not writing plays for us to be studying them in AP English 400 years later. He was <laughs> writing them. He was writing them to get butts in seats. You know, it was entertainment and it was supposed to be fun. But also, he is has just such a great richness to his language and to his ideas that you can go and just be entertained. You can go see one of the comedies, even in Romeo and Juliet. There are moments of 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 hilarity, and the Turing Company, for example, starts off. I shouldn't give this away, but the street fight starts off with like foam baguettes that the servants are hitting each other with instead of sword fights. So there's plenty of opportunity for for comedy and for lowbrow. And if you do go to the Globe, the the action, because there's so much more interaction with the audience, it does tend to be broader, and it's a large theater, so there's a lot of overemphasis. It's not like watching a filmed version where you get a lot of close-ups. But and but Shakespeare can go either way, so you can you can have really broad comedy, you can have over-the-top tragedy, as you'll see if you see Much Ado About Nothing when the players have a a long drawn-out death scene and somebody's rolling on the floor for it seems like for hours before they die. And then you can also have this incredible poignant uh, intimacy. Mm. And certainly plenty of scholars have made their fortunes <laughs> dissecting Shakespeare and plenty of people have made their money acting as clowns in his play. You can go either way. Yeah. And so you got your master's in Shakespearean studies um, at King's College in London which is connected, the program was connected to the Globe Theater. So do you have any, I assume you spent some time there, do you have any sort of insiders, uh, trivia or something you could share with us? Yeah, half of the program was taught at the Education Center at the Globe. And I just, I've learned, so I learned a lot about what early, it's called early modern, that period, late 16th, early 17th century, 
what early modern theater was like and how they, the, especially the outdoor theaters, did you know uh, appeal to a large range of people because it was so inexpensive. But at the same time, Shakespeare's Company, as well as others, were developing indoor theaters that were more exclusive, more expensive, uh, where you would go to not just to see, but also to be seen. So uh, that's kind of what I learned about it. Being at the Globe is more uh, more information about that time period and how theater operated in that time period. But I also got to see a lot of shows at the Globe, and it's just a wonderful, very unique place to see theater. It's kind of like the outdoor theater at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, which um, seats several hundred people. It's outdoors. You know, you're up to the vicissitudes of thunderstorms and helicopters and wind and mosquitoes and uh, I mean, you're all in it together, except that you do get to sit down at Shakespeare and Company. Right, right, If you right. go to the Globe, you want to get the best seats, you actually don't sit, you stand. Right. Well, um, maybe we'll talk about this some other time, but I was hoping that you had looked in the same mirror Shakespeare looked in or sat in his seat or used his handkerchief or something. But we've been talking <laughs> with Anne Berman. She is hosting a lecture series free fairly short lectures, an hour, not too long to sit through, mm -hmm. um, at, uh, Le at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox. The next one is the 4th of March, and that is on Midsummer Night's Dream. March 18th, there's one on Jealousy and Shakespeare, and then Saturday, April 1st, there's one about Henry VI. Yeah, so thank you mm -hmm. so much for joining us. This was great. I, I love, I read a couple of weeks ago that the difference between Shakespeare's era and the modern Republican Party is uh, Shakespeare was the taming of the shrew, and now it's the shaming of the true. Ooh. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you so much, Anne, for, for joining us. And for those of you who've been listening in the morning, thank you for spending some of your day with us. For those listening in the afternoon, Coming up right after the news break is another full hour of Talk to Talk, including SciTech Cafe with Professor Kirsten Nordstrom and the Comedy Quiz. For Bill Newman, for Dan Torres, for our WHMP team, I am Buzz Eisenberg for Talk to Talk. Thank you. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.